Why don't we open our Bibles and turn to <clears throat> the book of 1 Peter, the book of 1 Peter chapter 3. It's a little refreshing for me personally because we actually get to do somewhat of an expository sermon this morning in tackling a special study of marriage. It's easy to uh, get caught in a lot of otherwise topical preaching. Not that there's anything wrong with that, but in terms of preference, in terms of precision, um, I prefer to go verse by verse, and in our special case study this morning, I think we'll be able to see some very important truths very clearly regarding marriage. So if you're there, First Peter chapter 3, I'll read uh, through verses uh, 1 through 6, please follow along. In the same way, you wives be submissive to your own husbands, so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives, as they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. Your adornment must not be merely external, braiding the hair and wearing gold jewelry or putting on dresses, but let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God. For in the same way in former times, the holy women also who hoped in God used to adorn themselves being submissive to their own husbands, just as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you have become her children if you do what is right without being frightened by any fear. So we have quite a haul in front of us today, verses 1 through 6. And so we are studying the great creational and institution of marriage. And we are in a study of what it means to be not only a woman, but more specifically what it means to be a wife. A wife in the blessed confines of what we would hope is a harmonious marriage. Because remember, these things do not exist in a vacuum. A wife's duties complements her husband's. And so hopefully we will see as we move through this text how these things work together. We've kind of attacked them individually, but we also want to see how they work out harmoniously. And I think this is sort of the context in which Peter is speaking. He is talking about the harmony that exists between certain relationships that must be sustained within certain relationships in society. And as we open in uh, chapter 3 of First Peter this morning, he has already covered a number of other things. He's talked about harmony toward human government. Now, whatever your view of human government may be, Peter does say in chapter 2, verse 13, submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution. In verse 18, he says, Servants, be submissive to your masters with all respect. And then, of course, he gets to chapter 3 and then says, In the same way, you wives. And we understand this, of course, in the context of the reality of Christ's advancing kingdom. He is advancing His kingdom, bringing His new covenant promises to bear. And there are certain things that this new covenant order does not unseat or twist, but rather transforms. And so, of course, Christ's kingdom and His removal of the hostility that exists between certain uh, sects of society, including that between a man and a woman, a man and his wife, are not to be twisted or maligned. Rather, they are to be transformed. And that hostility is removed through the Gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so now Peter helps women understand how they are to live in regard to their husbands. Now, if you look down at verse 7, Peter has some things 
to say to husbands as well, but we have actually already covered that um, in some detail. So we are concentrating on talking about the responsibilities of wives to their husbands. Now, the, the title of this sermon, and for good reason, is called The Princess Bride, and I know what a number of you are thinking, and and that's okay, because I really do believe that the title for this sermon is very appropriate. Um, I think that it helps us understand the, uh, the particular example that is being laid here in this particular passage, verses 1 through 6. So we have begun this concentrated study of a wife's submission and respect to her husband. And of course, that is to be the counterpart of her husband's love for her. And this love and respect is the catalyst of a joyful marriage. It's one of the goals of this study. I want you guys to have joyful marriages. I want you to be happy in the Lord in your marriage as you pursue Him together. Husbands, as you love your wives faithfully, and then wives, of course, as you submit to your husbands faithfully. And I believe the Word of God is abundantly clear uh, on this issue. So we must go forth as Christians trusting in the Word of God, trusting in the full counsel of God, even when we use difficult and offensive words like submission. And we will restate the meaning of this, of course, so we have some good grounding. But the princess bride, and of course Peter is speaking in this passage regarding Sarah. And Sarah provides this exemplary picture of love and respect from a wife to her husband. So if you go down very quickly to verse 5, it identifies her specifically. For in this way, in former times, the holy women also who hoped in God used to adorn themselves being submissive to their own husbands, just as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. So he identifies her in particular, and so there is much to learn from Sarah and the example that she sets for women. Especially, we'll see that clearly as we observe uh, the various scriptures that speak of her. So when we first encounter Sarah, it's in Genesis 11.29, where her name is Sarai, which is Hebrew for my princess. So you could say, in a way, she is Abraham's princess. So you have Sarai and Abram. And in Genesis 17.5, God changes Abram's name. Abram means high father in Hebrew. High father. But he changes his name to Abraham, which means father of multitude. So that name change is in relationship to the promise that he gives to Abraham, that he will be a father of many nations. Through him, through his line, all the nations will be blessed. That is the promise that God gives to Abraham, and his name reflects it. But it's also the same with Sarah. Sarah simply means princess. Now, we're not to think that Sarah suddenly is going to uh, start demanding these massive rights of royalty, or that she's going to start prancing around in, in, in dresses and demanding of people that they call her my lady, or some such thing. But what this name does point to is her role alongside Abraham, this great privilege of receiving the promise of God alongside her husband. Now listen to what the Scripture says here also, Genesis 17. Then God said to Abraham, As for Sarai your wife, you shall not call her Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and indeed I will give you a son by her. And as you know, Sarah is barren. Then he says, then I will bless her and she shall be a mother of nations. Kings of peoples 
will come from her. And of course, that will ultimately culminate in the birth of the Messiah. Now imagine the great privilege based on that promise that has been given to Sarah. She wasn't promised independence or autonomy. She wasn't promised this great promotion in the corporate world. This promise reflects an an amazing truth, an amazing reality that would eventually come about. That the Lord Jesus would be born from her line. And as all the promises were made to Him, through Him, by faith, would come the blessing of the nations, the blessing of the eternal inheritance, the blessing of eternal life. So one thing we don't want to understand from Sarah, I would say the last thing that we want to understand from Sarah is that her example of submission is somehow her losing out. When in fact, her example is an example to be followed, especially by believing women. So this is submission. So of course we see Sarah. She is the princess bride married to Abraham. Mother of the promises, and in a sense, a second Eve, because she would be a mother of all living. So submission, you say, you keep using that word? I don't think it means what you think it means, so let's review this. Submission. First thing, kind of tighten up some of the qualifications here. Submission is not slavery. And so women, that means that you are not a doormat. In your submission, your husband is not free to exercise tyrannical authority. Over you, rather, he is supposed to love you. You are not his personal disposable property. You are not less of a human being. And of course, we say this because this goes against much of what was uh, consistent with the Roman order of the first century. Wives were property. They were disposable, and husbands had the power of life and death over them. And so, of course, if a woman was married to a tyrant or an abusive man, she, of course, had a multitude of of problems. She would live her life in fear. Submission also is not silence. Submission is not silence. Your husband, since he is not called to be a tyrant, he is not permitted to be a tyrant over you, his authority is not unassailable and unquestionable. Even though you honor his authority, he is, he is not unassailable. We also see that just as the Lord Jesus Christ wants to hear from His bride, He wants His bride to talk to Him, so should husbands desire to hear from their wives. We call this communication. We have some messages ahead in that regard. Christ wants to hear from His beloved bride. And so, wives, your husband, especially if he is a godly husband, should want to hear from you. And you should feel free to go and make requests of Him. I would say that in a biblical Christ-exalting marriage, most wives end up becoming their husband's not only best friend, but counselor and confidant. They share a lot of things, but those things aren't going to happen. Those things that are that that lend themselves to growing and strengthening marriage aren't going to happen if the husband never hears from his wife. So you, as a woman, as his wife, have an opportunity to speak into his life and be an encouragement to him, among other things. Here's another one, and I think this definitely goes against the grain of society today, is that submission is not a social construct. It is a divine construct, and it is consistent with the divine order. So we can come to the immediate conclusion that if it is from God, then it is a good thing. It's not a social construct. It is not this 
construct that lends itself to this, to this tyrannical patriarchy as we've already gone over. It's not this devious plan to subjugate women and to keep women down. It's part of the created order, always has been. And it's a good, and it's a good thing. And from creation, the man has been designed to be the head of his wife. Submission does not mean also following from this that you are second class. We find immediately in 1 Peter 3 reading on that the, that the husband is to treat his wife and honor her as a fellow heir of the grace of life. We stand to inherit all the blessings that are attached to Christ's kingdom. You are a fellow heir. And so here's what it does allude to. How do we understand submission? Submission for the woman is to honor the rank of her husband. And of course, this is a very condensed understanding of it. It is to submit to his headship and leadership and to be his helpmate for cultivating, subduing, and filling the earth. Partnering with him in this glorious work of stewardship. And this is to be done willfully, completely, graciously, and I would add, joyfully. Remember, submission is not to be pummeled. It is not to be ignored. It is not to be a second-class citizen. Rather, it is to be an, an honorable estate in God's redemptive work. And I know to many of you, submission seems, what we could say, is in, something inconceivable. And yet, it is from the heart of God. And so, in understanding this, let's turn to God's Word together. And we will see several things, I believe, that Sarah exemplifies that provide wonderful applications for wives even today. And I think some of them, again, are very, they are very hard to accept, sometimes to wrap our heads around, and yet we take God at His Word. So let's look at verse 1. In the same way, you wives, be submissive to your own husbands, so that even if any of them are disobedient to the Word. So let's pause there. He uses that word as he does in other passages. Your own denotes a couple of things. Closeness. Unity. Remember, the husband and wife are called to be one flesh. But it also points to this the, the, the closed function of the marital union. That the wife is to submit to her own husband and not to other men. She is under his headship. And his headship alone. We find this same idea in Ephesians chapter 5 that we went over. We also find it in Colossians chapter 3. So there is the foundational command there. In the same way, in maintaining harmony, in following the Lordship of Christ, you wives be submissive to your own husbands. And then it says this. There's a purpose statement here. So that even if any of them are disobedient to the Word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives as they observe your chaste and respectful Behavior. So that's really the first encouragement. And it seems to be in the face of a very grim circumstance. But we find here that Sarah and so women or wives can respect their husbands even when they sin. This, this question I think comes up often. And I think justifiably so. What are the parameters of submission? When do I not have to submit? What does my husband have to do to where that is a line crossed to where I do not have to submit. And we talked about that briefly last Lord's Day. One of the most important things is that if your husband is leading you into sin, if he is encouraging you to sin, 
you are called to not go along with that. It is better to obey God than men. And so it is not an unsubmissive act, I would say. It is not, it would be, you would be disrespecting your husband if you supported his sin. And ultimately, women, you are called to submit to God. That's why he says, submit to your husbands as unto the Lord. You are rendering a similar submissiveness and obedience to your husband as you would to the Lord. So it says that if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives. And so I think, I think something important is of note here in this circumstance. Peter says, if any of them are disobedient to the word, I don't think this necessarily speaks to an unequally yoked marriage. I don't think the assumption we draw from this text is that the husband is necessarily unbelieving. But I think this word disobedient, uh, points to the, a sort of insubordination on the part of the husbands to the Word of God. He is living disobediently to the Lord Jesus Christ. He's not obeying Scripture. He's walking contrary to it. Now, of course, if you're a believing husband, that's going to cause a multitude of problems in your marriage because you are called to be the spiritual head of your household. And we would also say that even an unbelieving husband is especially disobedient to the Word because he's disobedient to the command of the Gospel to believe and repent. But in either case, we are dealing with an unsubmissive husband. A husband who is not obeying the Lord. He is not obeying the Word of God. And so the temptation here for the wife is that her behavior is then predicated on her husband's behavior. It's going to be difficult for her to look at her husband and see a solid godly example. Herself being a believer. And of course, if she is submissive, she knows that she is called to look to her husband as an example of godliness. You know, we've talked about how men need to be an example that their wives can follow. It's a lot more difficult for a wife to be submissive to a husband who is disobedient to the Lord, especially when he is disobedient to a Lord he claims to trust in. And so the temptation for wives is to view these moral failures and spiritual blindness as a license to treat him with contempt or to rebel against his headship. That is, to sin. And so we say, well, how does this relate to Sarah? How does this relate to the princess bride? Well, we see that Sarah respected Abraham even when, when he sinned. Abraham sinned. Yes, Abraham was the father of the faithful, but he was by no means the paragon of moral perfection. He had his weaknesses, and we see examples of this in the book of Genesis. He was a godly man. He was a pillar of the faith. He believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. But even believing men fail to live up to that, that righteous standard. We are still flesh. We are still being sanctified. We understand that. Abraham understands that. And I think importantly, Sarah understood that. We see Abraham taking matters into his own hands. He wasn't immune to that, especially when an, a circumstance came that he perceived as a threat. And the thing is, is, he does this twice. Once in Genesis 12, he fears the king of Egypt. And so before even going into the land, Abraham takes aside his, his, his wife and says, Behold, you're a beautiful woman. Surely they'll kill me. <laughs> And so to save his own skin, he lies. I mean, he really tells a half-truth because Sarah is his half-sister. But he says, tell them, you're my sister, and we'll all get out of this. Life and limb intact. And so what does he do? He demonstrates 
a lack of trust, a lack of trust in God. Even though God has just promised him and sent him out. So he does the same thing in Genesis 20 with King Abimelech. Oh no, they're going to kill me. Just say, just say, Sarah, that you're my sister. Same thing happens. Demonstrates a, a lack of trust. I think a similar thing happens when it comes to the promises of God when he takes Hagar's maidservant. And through that union, Ishmael is born, who is not the son of promise. Remember, we are not talking about natural things here. We are talking about supernatural things here. We're trusting, we're talking about trusting in the work of God. And even at Sarah's behest, we say that even Sarah's trust, in a sense, was, was shaken for a time. It does not make her ungodly. Right? It does not make her faithless. But even people who set the most godly examples experience times where their faith is shaken and they take matters into their own hands. And yet, Sarah still respected her husband. Still respected him and honored him, calling him Lord. And so her respect for him did not depend on perfect performance. It did not depend on Abraham always acting obediently to God. In fact, there is a strategy that is employed here that rather than the wives falling into disobedience, it, Peter says that if the husband is disobedient to the word, there is a hope that they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives as they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. So once again, Wives, the disobedience of your husband is not a pretext for you to, to go and disobey or to go and sin and figure, okay, well, my husband's not in this, then that, then that relinquishes all accountability. That absolves me of any accountability that I have to be submissive to my husband. And yet Peter says no such thing. The desire, the hope is that the husband may be won over without words. One to faith in Christ, or I think here, one to obedience. Going from being disobedient to the Word to actually obeying the Word. And of course, this is not a, uh, if necessary, use words kind of gospel. I think the implication of this statement is proclaiming Christ. Proclaiming Christ in the sense that your, your obedience to Him is consistent with the gospel. By your life, you are proclaiming the work that Christ is doing in you. By obeying Him. That means your example is more than just talk. You cannot be accused merely of just words. There is an example to be followed as well. And that's what this literally means here. Without talk, aside from the pleas of the wife to repent. Because that is something that ha happens often in a marriage. Especially a Christian marriage. If one, if one goes off the rails, there are, there are pleas. right? Sometimes begging. And yet, this godly example proves that the wife is not all talk. It proves that her faith in Christ is not merely all talk. And I think in some sense, words said at the wrong time, mistimed, you know, I think most of us can relate to this, is it can even make a man more stiff-necked can shut him off to it. It's not excusing him at all. Yet we find that is often what happens. One without a word. That's the principle. 
It doesn't mean, wives, that you never encourage. It doesn't mean that you never exhort. It doesn't mean that you never rebuke. Especially when your husband is committing a sin that is particularly destructive to the marriage. But in most cases, I think Peter's identifying that women can apply a wise, thoughtful, respectful protocol that is a guard against nitpicking and overbearing behavior that will cause your husband to stiffen his neck. Peter says here, you, you claim Christ, you are obedient to the Word, just continue obeying Jesus because His authority supersedes the headship of your husband. And, you're, and, and I think by that example, you will turn your husband back to where ultimate headship and authority lies. But he is accountable to Christ for obeying His Word and leading you faithfully. And that's the hope. Is that when your husband is disobedient, the best way to win him over is to obey God. And in that, your silence will speak volumes. It will shout from the rooftops. Peter says this in verse 12 of chapter 2. It says, Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so that in the very thing in which they slandered you as evildoers, that they may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. And certainly we would hope that by your example, that the Lord would visit your husbands in a gracious way, grant them repentance so that they will be obedient to the Word and glorify the Lord because of your ongoing respect rather than being subversive or lawless. And that is a call to persevere. A disobedient husband, especially one who is recalcitrant and rebuffs your exhortations, is an especially difficult man. We realize it is hard living with the man, especially one who is a spiritual hypocrite, who has abdicated his responsibility to lead you. We recognize how difficult that is. And yet Peter's words remain. Even though your husband is disobedient, you obey. Even though he may experience failures as Abraham does, even though he may trust in himself and his own wisdom and not trust in God, you continue to trust in God and obey Him. And then he goes on to say this, as they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. Of course, Peter is once again addressing the wife, drawing on a term that he has already used, respect, reverence. We could call this combination of chastity and reverence or respect a life free from contamination actually alludes to ceremonial purity. But this is, the, this is the exemplary character of the Christian wife. Word also used here for, for fear. I think speaks of the reverent attitude that a wife maintains for her husband. You may not respect his behavior, but you still respect him. You respect the office. In whatever way is possible, you honor him as the head of your household that he may be won over to obedience to Christ. I think this sentiment is echoed in Titus 2.5. Paul's instruction for women that is similar to this says, for women to be sensible, pure workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands, so that the word of the Lord or the word of God will not be dishonored. Or blaspheme. Right? Living, in a, living a life before your husbands in such a way that no one questions where your ultimate loyalties lie. 
so that no one will question the validity of the Word of God. And of course, the reason is, we would say that the Word of God has power. It has authority. It transforms. I mean, read Psalm 19. says it all. The law of the Lord is perfect, right? The, and it goes down the line describing the quality of the law of God. And so if we're maintaining, on one hand, that the, that the Word of God transforms and does a wondrous saving work in the life of the believer, and then on the other hand, doing seemingly just the opposite, what a reproach that brings to God's Word. It would be thought that it is it has no power, it has no authority, it, it has no beauty or consistency. And once again, this points to the top priority, whether man or wife, that the top priority is that the Word of God is honored, especially in the home. It begins in the home. And I believe this behavior is especially impressive to the husband. I think what often happens today in marriages such as these where the husband is acting dysfunctional, it's seen as a, a grounds for leaving, departing that marriage. This, this brings a certain level of misery to the marriage union when a husband is disobedient to the Word, when he's not functioning consistently with the role that God has given to him. For his good, mind you. And so the woman in view here is a woman who stays with her husband, does not see as disobedient as a grounds for rebellion. And we see here too this, this careful observation. In verse 2 it says, as they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. And Peter is counting on something I think is very key to this, to this work, to this pursuit of harmony in marriage, to this pursuit of an obedient husband. Is he is counting on the fact that husbands will be watching. That husbands will take notice. Even though many a time the man of the household may seem aloof and unawares. He is watching the behavior of his wife. And, and why not? Because if he acts a certain way, it's going to spill over. It's going to affect his wife. It's going to affect the way she responds. And so he is going to notice that response. He is going to experience irritation and sometimes outright anger if his wife rebels against him or is unsubmissive. But he is certainly going to notice it that if he acts the fool, if he acts disobedient to the Word, his wife responds with honor, with submissiveness, with respect, because she is ultimately respecting God. And that is how Peter desires these husbands to be won over. And we think, man, nothing, nothing really special. This is, just, this is ordinary Christian living. I think sometimes we could read a multitude of books experience many sessions of counseling, and yet all Peter says here is chaste and respectful that the husband will observe it, careful scrutiny of the life she lives by faith, and that will lead him to obedience. So that's what we find, is respect for the husband even when he sins, even, even when he is disobedient. And of course, I think that represents the greatest challenge. But Sarah, I think, sets a wonderful example here that even though Ab Abram and Abraham was, was at times disobedient, she still respected and honored. And we see the second one, I think, related to it. The second point 
is that Sarah respected her husband even though she was beautiful. And you think, okay, how is beauty a pitfall, right? What's bad about being beautiful? Don't hate me because I'm beautiful. But this is something that is acknowledged about Sarah. We've already talked about that. Twice it's acknowledged. And yet, in a, in, in this kind of uh, husband and wife relationship, it can be a pitfall. Because Peter says very carefully, you don't, you want to win over your husband in a certain way, but you do not want to rely on another way to win him over. And look at this. He kind of spells out what is characteristic of this chaste, respectful behavior. So in verse three, he says, your adornment must not be merely external, braiding the hair, wearing gold jewelry, or putting on dresses, but let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God. So he talks about, I think, three primary ways, and I think these are the same today, in which women beautify themselves. There's braiding the hair, there's wearing jewelry, and putting on dresses. Now, again, there's nothing wrong with either of these things in and of themselves. Beauty is a good thing. Beauty is something of from, from, from the mind of God. Beauty exists because God exists. Even in creation, there is a standard for something, for, for what is beautiful. So Peter isn't saying that these things are wrong in and of themselves. He simply do not rely on them. I would say do not rely on them in order to manipulate the situation. Let it be the hidden person of the heart. It's amazing too, and, and, and something needs to be acknowledged here is that Nothing has really changed in the last 2,000 years. Beauty standards are still a thing. And I think this is something that is an immense pressure that is placed on women. This, this pressure to be beautiful that, that looks matter. Absolutely, looks matter. But especially mattered back then. Just looking up some stats. In 2022, the cosmetics industry was worth $49 billion. And within the first six months of 2021, $8.7 billion was spent on plastic surgery procedures. That's a lot of money. All this money is spent trying to, to turn back the clock. Such an obsession among many members of society to, to, to sort of retake this original form that as they age is being lost. And rather than aging gracefully over time with, with all the cutting and all the lifting and all the nip-tucking, it seems like the counter of that happens. What was once beautiful and recognizable is suddenly grotesque and unrecognizable, and yet it's amazing the money we spend to defy gravity and time. It ends up being something, ironically, that you do not want to put on display. Again, none of these things are bad, but do not depend on them. Wearing gold jewelry. They even had bling back then. Drew attention often to, to wealth. Put on a, we could call an ostentatious display of your place in society. And I think there's a fine line between being attractive for one's husband and then of course being attractive for everyone else. And I think we find that warning elsewhere that when you, when you come to the assembly, don't dress in such a way as to draw undue attention to yourself. Again, Peter, neither Peter nor Paul are condemning looking good. Right? That is how we both initially attract ourselves, you know, ourselves to one another. 
We call that putting our, putting our best foot forward. Women try to look pretty. Guys try to look handsome and swole. There is an effort put in to attract a mate. That is a good thing. And yet it, that attraction doesn't just start and stop there. And Peter makes that clear. There is the hidden person of the heart. Putting on dresses, same thing. Dresses are nice. Dresses are feminine. And yet they're not to be used to, to put on a show. So Peter is describing basically everything, several things that a woman would do in that time to be physically. But he says, beware of this. It is the hidden person of the heart that is going to win your husband to obedience to the Word. Not merely these externals. Condemning this. Even you read Proverbs 31. The Proverbs 31 woman in verses 21 and 22 describes her household as being clothed in scarlet and she wears purple and linen. So again, fine clothing is not sinful. In fact, fine clothing may be helpful when you are acting in a chaste and respectful manner. But it is not to be used as a be-all, end-all tactic to winning over your husband. Listen to Proverbs 31.30. Charm is deceitful and beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord, she shall be praised. Charm and beauty are not bad things, but, Peter, but, but uh, the writer of the Proverbs expresses their limitations. They are, they, are, they are limited factors. Charm can be deceiving. Beauty is vain or is it, it's fleeting. It passes away with age. But what remains, he says, a woman who fears the Lord. He is describing Sarah. A woman who feared the Lord. These are the things that are true in the present and they are things that one can look forward to. A woman who fears the Lord is descriptive of something that is not limited by time. A woman can grow in her fear of the Lord, even while other things may be passing. And so when it comes to charm and beauty, the warning is clear. Don't use these as a manipulation tactic. Do not use things that are fleeting and subject to decay to set the final example or to be a covering for godliness. He says rather, let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit which is precious in the sight of God. And this is totally consistent with what is attractive about the Gospel. Think about what is written in Isaiah chapter 53, verse 2. He had no stately form or majesty that we should look upon Him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to Him. I think there's a parallel at work there. What won, do you, what won you to Christ? It was the truth of the Gospel and the work of the, of the Holy Spirit. It wasn't that Christ was somehow attractive physically. There was something supernatural at work. And I think that the same thing is in view. This, this uh, hidden person of the heart, this imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, that, that suggests strongly that there is something supernatural at work in the heart of the godly wife that will win her husband over. And we note too that these are things that pagans despise. They don't value these things. They don't, they don't treasure these things. These things that are hidden. These things that are deeper than simply the skin. And yet Peter remarks on their quality. The imperishable 
quality of a gentle and quiet spirit. Now, if you want to look at that word imperishable, very important word. It's, it means something that is not subject to decay. Something that lasts. So in verse 4, chapter 1, Peter talks about this inheritance that is imperishable. It's the same word that is used to describe the inner quality of this woman. So true beauty is found on the inside, friends, is not something ugly people say. It matters. It matters immensely. Peter is drawing our attention to something that is hidden, something that is maybe not immediately obvious, but something that supersedes physical beauty. Something that is invisible, internal, and lasting. This center of a renewed, transformed life. Something that is not showy or pretentious. Something that is not strained for attention. So Peter is calling the wives to pursue that rather than simply mere outward beauty. Things that are subject to decay. And this imperishable quality says of a gentle and quiet spirit. I think we'll see how this runs counter to many of the things that are promoted in modern or postmodern womanhood. He says, first of all, gentleness. A gentle and quiet spirit that is meekness, humility. And what this speaks to is the fact that a godly wife who seeks to win over her husband is not proud, unteachable, or demanding. She is not out to pick a fight. She's not out to usurp her husband's role as head of his household. She is devoted to him and considerate to him even when he is disobedient. Oftentimes, even at his worst. Quiet refers to a calm and soft disposition. Of course, this speaks to what she is not. She is not loud. She is not obnoxious. She's not pushy and demanding of her own way. She's not saying, well, you're not leading, so I guess I need to lead. But it also doesn't mean that she lacks convictions. This is a woman of conviction we're viewing here. But her convictions are expressed in such a manner that she does not attempt to usurp her husband's role in the family. And I think this is very, something like this really sets the tone in, in your household. It's interesting if you've read that book, Reforming Marriage, in the introduction, uh, Doug Wilson actually talks about this very thing, the aroma of your household. What does your house smell like? Does it stink of rottenness and death and decay of a marriage that is falling apart? Or is it the aroma of life leading to life? And much of how the woman responds to a husband, though he be disobedient, will lend itself to the quality of that aroma. Especially, this is especially in regards to how she views it. Remember, in a situation like this, today's woman is encouraged to be independent, autonomous. She doesn't need no man. And if your man acts up, then teach him a lesson. And there's a variety of ideas that can come our way, whether it's leaving him, usurping his role of headship, or just being snarky and rebellious and obnoxious. And yet, let's see this the way God sees this. Look at your Bibles again. He says, which is precious in the sight of God. So there's the why in all of this. Whether husband or wife, we are called to pursue and live consistently to that which is precious in the sight of God. To value what He values. To cherish what He cherishes. To invest in what He invests in. To love what He loves. That if God says something is precious, if God says something 
is a priority, then it becomes our priority in marriage especially. We dare not get derailed here. Because we can be very subjective when it comes to what is important. You don't have to look long to find this is especially, especially true in, in celebrity marriages. When, when, the, when they're on their third or fourth divorce, they part ways. You know, we, we, we appreciate your respect of our privacy at this time. No one's respecting their privacy. Everyone wants to be in their business. But one of the main things that comes out is that they are, they are departing for a while to figure out what's important to them. And the Word of God comes to us and says, you know what's important? What is important to the wife should be her husband, and what is important to the husband should be his wife. That's what's important. That is precious in the sight of God. And in the context of the wife's behavior, it is this very thing he says, the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit. Mark that down. That is precious, not detestable. We want, to, we want to flee the things that God hates and cling to the things that God loves. And I think this may be the most important part of this text in terms of, of, of your mindset as a wife. Because none of this is going to be considered important. We've said time and time again, both husbands and wives in this room, that we have to stop caring about what pagans think. We have to start caring what God about what God thinks. And rather than a pursuit of independence, a premium on personal well-being, a solid career, being master and creator of your own destiny, and overthrowing the oppressive patriarchy, what is most important is to obey God and to do what is precious in His sight. And I think regarding the patriarchy, there's this sort of massive quest in fourth wave feminism to overthrow the patriarchy. And one thing I mentioned was that it's not, what's not, what's not the point is overthrowing the whole order, right? I believe that God has ordered society, I think scripture says as much, that it is a, that society is a rule of fathers. Men are meant to lead. Men exercise headship. Okay. So, just because a man or several men, or let's say 99% of the world's men come in and apply that in a perverted, ungodly way, it doesn't mean we overthrow that order. The very point that Peter makes is to repent from the sin that is contaminating and blurring that order. Don't overthrow the order. May it be transformed by the gospel. May it be restored to its natural function as God intended. But don't destroy it. And yet that is the woman's role in this. Not rebellion, not usurping the husband's headship, but godliness. Walking with the Lord even when her husband will not. And I think this offers... Great encouragement, especially if you're a wife out there and you've been walking with the Lord for quite some time and your, and your husband is, he is disobedient to the Lord. Perhaps he's even unbelieving and you're, and you're wondering what you are to do next because he is not leading faithfully. And yet this is, this is the roadmap to that. This is the clear guide to living before the Lord and honoring him. That what is it, whatever is precious to him 
is precious to you. And hopefully as the Spirit works, it will also be precious to your husband. Now, I believe that we can get to the rest of this next Lord's Day. As noble as my intentions were to get through all of this, that can be our first couple of lessons today, our first couple of applications. Wives, submit to your husbands, even when they sin, even when they are disobedient to the Lord, and even if you're beautiful. <laughs> let your obedience to the Lord be that which wins Him over. So we'll get to the, the next three or four next Lord's Day. So if you will, bow your heads with me and we'll pray together. Father, thank You again for Your love and faithfulness to us. And though we must stop short today, there's uh, plenty to explore ahead. And I do pray, Lord, that uh, especially for the wives in this room, that they would take Your Word seriously, that they would by faith uh, obey what Peter instructs. And, and we, we also read ahead in this text that, that they are not to be fearful. They're not to be frightened by any fear. But they can trust in You. And, and we know that perhaps several of them in here may, may be in a situation where their husband's character is compromised. Or perhaps he is unbelieving and it's a very difficult situation. We, we recognize it is it is hard for the wife to be submissive when her husband is acting the fool. And so I do pray, Father, for every marriage in here that You would uh, shine the light of truth on their relationship, that You would grant repentance, that You would restore harmony, that You would restore, if necessary, in the life of in the lives of the husbands in this room, a love for their, their wives, a, a supernatural love for them that, that overcomes temptation, that overcomes the sorrows of life, that overcomes unbelief. They would love their wives faithfully. And I also pray for the wives that in turn, that they would be submissive toward their own husbands to take ownership, to cherish the man that You have placed in their lives but they would not use either beauty or, or the sin of their husband as a pretext for usurping their role or taking matters into their own hands, but that they would look to You first and foremost for grace, for provision, for mercy in their marriage union and grant them whoever needs it. Grant them peace, grant them hope, grant them repentance so that each and one of our marriages can be harmonious, and ultimately, Father, exalting to Your Son because He is the one who loves His bride. And He is the one who sets that supreme example. So I pray that as a church, we would submit to Him and honor Him as He is worthy. And all this we pray and commit to You in Jesus' name. Amen.